I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your your youth pastor this week. <laughs> and I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm your parent volunteer this week. Ooh, did you bring the cookies? I did. I brought them, but I did have to swing by uh, the local store to buy them. I did not bake them at home. I forgot until just this moment. Fair enough. That's fine. The teens don't care. They just want the cookies. <laughs> Uh, this week on the show, we're talking with Amoria Armstrong, who you actually just heard, unbeknownst to you. <laughs> Amoria does the music for the Magnificast. Um, she made us those very, very good beats that you hear in the beginning. Uh, she even has a quote in the very beginning there, too. Um, I guess now you can find out which one it was as you hear her speak. Uh, but uh, we decided to have her back on the show for a lot of reasons, mostly because it's just been way too long since she's been here, but also because she wrote a fantastic article for The Bias uh, called... Sorry, you're going to have to edit this. Christian Order and Racial Order, What Cedric Robinson Has to Teach Us Today. Uh, it's a really, really fantastic um, introduction to Cedric Robinson as a theorist and also to kind of the nest of issues involved in Christians and how people are reacting to the unrest that's going on right now and uh, all that um, all that kind of stuff. It all comes together in that very cool piece. Yeah, it's such a good article. Um, I really love it. I was telling Dean beforehand that um, the... You know, the intervention that Amaria brings uh, against Christianity and I mean, like white Christianity in, in this article is really helpful. And, you know, it should be it should be devastating. But I think it's actually kind of really freeing, <laughs> you know, that you don't have to yeah. you don't have to do the mental gymnastics of trying to, like, um, always find the the way that Christianity is, is good and pure for you or something. You know, it, it helps you kind of understand that, like, what you really need to do is kind of come some kind of deeper understanding about all of the evil that Christianity has done. And I appreciate those types of um, those interventions into my life and my brain. And uh, <laughs> now you can appreciate it too in this conversation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It can be hard to hear at first, but uh, it does really help um, as you let it sink into your, your bones. Uh, so in the conversation we hear from Amaria about Cedric Robinson, some of the tools that he gives us to think, and also the tools that Amoria gives us to think about, um, or to think with as she draws from, from his work and elsewhere. 
and also we end up returning to all kinds of classic Magnificast themes like uh, why is Christianity so bad and what are you supposed to do with it what <laughs> should you do with it etc alright let's go to Maria At the end of every episode of the Magnificast, we announce that the intro music is by you, Amaria, our guest today. Uh, so people should be familiar with you from some past episodes on this, but also uh, every single episode of the Magnificast, whether they know it or not. Um, but you've got a lot more accolades than being just a, a very good podcast music composer. So why don't we just let you introduce who you are? Yes, well, um, you know, I feel... Like, it's not every day that I'm introduced as a podcast music composer, so I think that's <laughs> pretty cool and an accolade I'm very excited about. Hey, get from under there. <laughs> my dog is walking under my desk, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can introduce yeah. your dog, too. That can be another guest. Yeah, a uh, special guest, Sage, my... Dogs is being kind of an asshole right now. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. Other than you know, doing podcast music composition, I guess I also uh, work as an assistant professor of race and American religion and culture at Virginia Tech. And I'm also a co-host of the Assembly podcast on the Political Theology Network. And... Yeah, one of these days we're going to have to do a crossover episode. Yeah, cool. that'd be very cool. Yeah. Um, well, we uh, wanted you to come on today uh, to talk about an article that you wrote recently for The Bias called Christian Order and Racial Order, What Cedric Robinson Has to Teach Us Today. Um, it's a really great piece and everyone should go out and read it. We'll make sure we link it and post about it some more. Uh, but uh, before we get into it, can you just tell us a little bit about what the article is about? Like, what's uh, what's the elevator pitch for the the piece? Yeah, um, I guess the elevator pitch for the piece is, uh, you know, in the wake of all this kind of uh, black protests and uprising in the U.S., there's been a lot of, like, talk of law and order uh, and um, I really, I don't know. I guess a curious thing that happens to me is I think... uh, Christians either like have an idea of order that's like on the side of law and order kind of policing stuff or an idea of order that's supposedly like uh, critiques that. Uh, And I was trying to show the kind of um, relationship between Christian ideas of order and racial ideas of order by, um, thinking with Cedric Robinson, who's this black uh, radical thinker. Uh, This is not an elevator pitch, I'm realizing. (laughs) Anyways, the piece is essentially like trying to think with his idea of order and uh, how it still has resonance for understanding what's going on today uh, and the relationship between theological and political ideas of order. That's great. Um, You know, some buildings are really tall. So uh, that is totally an elevator pitch. And that's just fine. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good essay. It's really fun. And also, like, uh, I don't know, I appreciate it because you do a good job summarizing Cedric Robinson, um, which is not an easy thing to do, I don't think. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah. 
so one way that you frame the essay is by challenging this this narrative, uh, not only about order, but about um, kind of separating like nonviolent good protesters from violent or destructive bad protesters. Uh, so one quote that you have uh, toward the beginning, you say, violent protest, we are told, is a threat not only to the legitimacy of the protest, but also a as a threat to the very social order of the United States. Um, and I think that might be just a good way to kind of like get into the conversation a bit. Like, what exactly do you think that story does for how we look at protests and uprisings? Um, and then also the kind of so-called normal state of things or or the normal terms of order? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of moralization that goes on or that happens whenever something like looting or, uh, you know, physical kind of defense or any other kind of like um, forceful pushback happens during protests. Uh, and the narrative is kind of like, oh, this is like delegitimizing um, violence or looting or something. And uh, part of what I think I was trying to call attention, <clears throat> something I was trying to call attention to is like how it seems like there's an assumption that uh, protests are supposed to be trying to like restore the social order that they're protesting against, which seems like a kind of like silly way to think about what a protest is. And um, actually the like normal social order is one where police are using violence all the time uh, with exceptional amounts of power in totally brutal and uh, death-dealing ways. Uh, and uh, that is actually how the social order of the U.S. is constituted. Uh, and so I guess I was trying to call attention to how, like, if that's what order is, uh, you know, like, of course, it makes sense to violently protest against that order. It makes sense to, like, uh, engage in disorderly behavior because um, what makes order in this country is like built on a lot of anti-black violence that just is what keeps things running. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Um, I'm always really fascinated when when people who are really good at thinking about things like you are um, can kind of help us, you know, um, correct the narrative, right? That protests aren't just... Uh, protests or, or riots or whatever, right, aren't just like um, random outbursts of, of activity, but they have like a logic to them. I think that's really helpful. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about like the the way that you're using order from Robinson. Um, you uh, yeah, like your article is, is drawing on Cedric Robinson um, and you're calling attention to like the the formative racializing logic in capitalism that gets like sidelined by socialists um defaulting to questions about class oppression or economics right like um they're kind of missing the boat um could you introduce us to citric robinson a little bit more and um what his project is and like what you find especially useful about his work um and maybe what you know you want more people to take away from it yeah um so i mean i feel like i'm still like trying to 
still feel like a student of his work in many ways uh, and am really excited about his work and want to share it as much as I can. But I definitely am like, don't feel like an expert on him. Uh, but uh, as I understand Cedric Robinson and his project is, it seems twofold to me. And like one part of his project is a critique and kind of historicization of uh, Western political thought, including like Marxist thought as like um, kind of historically uh, kind of positioning itself as universal arbiter of uh, norms of like civilization, existence, etc. Uh, but this universal narrative has a history and that history is European. So this whole kind of Western political order is like assumes a certain kind of normative universality when it really is derived from this very like particular set of um, existential and like epistemological kinds of um, histories. And so um, I feel like one, that's like one arm of his critique is kind of like historicizing um, Western political economy and its history as this European lineage, including Marxism and talking about the proletarian that Marxism imagines in this kind of universalizing way as like historically related to like the kind of material formations happening in Europe. Uh, and so he's really kind of well known for the, his formulation of racial capitalism, which essentially talks about how, you know, within this European kind of order of knowledge, it's already a kind of racialized um, idea of existence. And so the emergence of capitalism is not uh, something that precedes race or race idea, but actually like depends on it and it's like emerges with and through this European uh, racial imagination. So that's like, yeah, one element of his critique. And then I feel like the other side of his uh, work is really kind of drawing attention, I feel like, to the kind of uh, creative ways, I guess, or resources in Black radical thought for, um, like, both critiquing Western order, but also having, like, a different imagination of society and of life together that is, like, critical of the political assumptions about order and law and things like that that are so pervasive in the West. So, yeah, I feel like that was kind of a rambly way about it. But essentially, he has a critique of Western politics and also a more like constructive piece that's rooted in like the resources from Black radical uh, traditions uh, for different way of existing and understanding reality. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Um, it makes sense, too, of that 
sort of weird habit that you point out of a lot of um, socialists, especially now, kind of reducing everything to uh, class and then race becomes maybe like an epiphenomenon or like a tool of the bourgeoisie rather than constitutive of that um, that kind of order. Yeah, I, I think there's a narrative that's like, oh, race emerges as a way to divide mm. uh, this working class. And I think for Robinson, it's more like, and I think this also like, uh, just like thinking about the research that I've done around like Christian theological ideas of peoplehood and race, these things seem to work to make sense together. But I think Robinson is like, uh, no, Europe already has a like racial idea uh even like prior to the emergence of capitalism so it's not that somehow like race is introduced later as a like justification for like a class division uh not saying that it can't be used that way obviously but i think he's trying to draw attention to the fact that there's this like existential element of uh like racial capitalism too that's about like governing existence and like arranging the distribution of not just like goods and money but also like the social value of people's lives and like that element of um like capitalism can't be accounted for without understanding like race as central to it and not something that is just like an effect of capitalism. Yeah, that is super helpful. Um, And that the way that you bring in that work that you've done, like you were saying on the theological side, I was just sort of chuckling to myself, I guess, because uh, it seems like Christians, you you would hope would be able to actually understand that point by virtue of uh, the Christian history of race. But obviously, that's kind of the whole point is that Christians don't get it uh, because they uh, or we have sort of invented it in a really bizarre and awful kind of way. Um, and you draw some of those kinds of relationships out in your uh, essay, like you reference, for example, Robinson's observations on the problems of uh, redemption themes in European politics. Um, so maybe that might be just one way of kind of connecting these dots a little bit more. Could you say something about how redemption works in politics and how it's tied into racial and, and colonial capitalist projects? Yeah, so something interesting about what Cedric Robinson is doing is he's not just, like, he has a book called The Terms of Order, which is where a lot of uh, my thinking was with in that article. Uh, But he's not just trying to track ideas of order. He's also trying to, like, track a kind of, like, related idea of authority And he talks about, like, this idea of the charismatic leader in Western politics as this figure who's seen as kind of, like, emerging from the people, but then, like, having a certain authority that, like, puts them in a position, like, above them or kind of, like, an authority over. And I think part of what he's trying to get at is, like, or I think part of what he sees is there's like a certain kind of connection between this like theological idea of redemption and how it's imagined that salvation happens and like political ideas 
of order and how it's imagined that political change happens through this kind of salvific charismatic leader figure. And um, so I think that's like one element of how he's trying to like think about the relationship between redemptionist ideas and Christian history, European history, and in politics. Uh, but then I think he's also like pointing to, um, or maybe this is more of like the connection that I'm making between like the work I've done in theology and his work. But I think he also draws attention to like how theology, Christianity, presumes a certain kind of order to history uh, that's like oriented by redemption and that kind of like idea of redemption history shapes a lot of how people perceive God at work in the world, uh, God ordering things in the world. And I think part of what he is talking about is um, how there's a kind of like presumption of order as like a necessary thing um to make sense of the world and like how do we get that it seems kind of inherited from this kind of christian uh redemptive idea of like order and being able to like perceive it in the workings of the world so i think he's also trying to like draw attention to like political ideas of order and their presumption of order as like um necessary and normative and i think he's really kind of trying to uh draw attention to like um how perception of order is like shaped by all these things that get covered over because it's just assumed to be the way that things are so i think he's really trying to uh draw attention to like um you know I guess, like, an example that I've thought about myself is, like, um, if you're, like, arranging things and you, like, said something, like, if you set something out of uh, place so that it's not within your arrangement anymore and you're just focusing on the things that you've arranged, um, you're creating order by, like, reducing um, what what one's attention is on or by like training your eyes to look at certain things and not other things. So I think he's trying to draw attention to like how these ideas of like order or like some kind of like governance um, being necessary kind of leaves out the fact of like the decisions that are made on like what to focus on or how to arrange things um, and the effects that that has on, like, how we, like, live, but also how we claim to know things about reality and the world. Um, as you're saying all of this, I, I guess the image that just keeps popping in my brain is, um, I'm sure everyone's seen it by now, but there's, like, a really popular video from, um, I mean, I guess I don't even know what city, but it's a, it's a, it's a video of a, a lot of, like, white people kind of standing around like in this like sort of prayerful position um, oh god yeah kind of doing <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about doing like the kind of Is like this the like confessional yeah, video or something yeah god. kind of like confessing their own like their own complicity in white supremacy and racism and i guess um 
I mean, when you're talking it's about so the, bad, yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> when you're talking about the way order covers over things, I'm, I'm thinking about that video about how that is like the the biggest distraction and the biggest. Totally. Yeah, I, I mean, do you, what do you do? You think of the that that weird presentation maps on to Robinson's idea here? Yeah, I mean, so I think something that's always striking to me about um, like certain postures of anti-racism is like they're really modeled on a Christian idea of conversion. You know, this idea that you're going to like, you've had some kind of transformation and now you're going to go evangelize to your racist uncle and you're equipped with the truth of anti-racism and you're going to like convert your racist uncle into being anti-racist or something. Uh, Like that. And then also like the need for some kind of like, confession and absolution through confession as like how racism like as the first step towards like fighting racism or something and I find that like one I find that super ineffective and obnoxious but like two I think it like I think it also is like a hindrance for people in actually um, and actually, like having their realities transformed or like their lives changed in a more substantial way, because I think it really is oriented by this kind of like um, confession and absolution model and this idea of like conversion. But um, it's not a like conversion to like doing a certain kind of work it's like a conversion to confess Mm. and like that is like the orientation of it and I guess I'm just like please like I just I would be really just so upset (laughs) if any white person ever tried to do that to me because I would just be like why are you putting this on me like I don't want your confession you know like that's between you and your bad feelings. And um, yeah, yeah. So I guess like to me, it seems like it really is just retains a certain orientation to like redeeming white people in some way, whether it's through like converting them and then like through confession, they'll find redemption, you know, through absolution from black people or something. Mm. Um, I just, I don't, I want none of that, but it's a very pervasive kind of model for like what um, anti-racism is supposed to look like. And I think part of why it's like a very kind of popular model is precisely because like Christianity and its ideas of conversion and confession are so, um, like widespread as a kind of common sense of what like transformation looks like in our like common imagination. Uh, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, um, I guess if uh, I guess the the pattern that emerges for me is that uh, Christians are just always really quick to try to dodge culpability or that that transformation for some some reason, like frees you from that culpability that you you or frees you from you know the the past sins altogether and now you don't have to worry about them anymore and i, I don't know 
I, I agree. I mean, I think that it is ineffective and bad for all the reasons that you said. I think the thing that always like bothers me so much is, um, I think I'm just like, how are you like confessing for something that you don't even understand the extent of yet? Mm. You know? Yeah. And I think it's like, okay, so like you saw this video and it made you sad or whatever. You had some kind of reaction, which is like totally cool, like understandable. Uh, but to me, it's like, um, if you recognize that like you haven't been paying attention to like anti-blackness in this country and now you're realizing that you need to do that, it seems to me like what you need to understand uh, is like the depth to which you like haven't understood if that makes sense and it always seems to me like these ideas of confessions like um i don't like the ideas of confession but if it's to have any use right it seems like one has to actually do some kind of like interrogation uh prior to confession where you actually come to terms with like the level of harm that's been done and are able to like articulate that in order to confess, you know, but what you actually have is just white people being like, Oh, like we apologize for the sin of racism or something, which is like so generic as to be meaningless. Uh, so to me, I'm just like, you don't even understand like the specificity of the harm that is occurring or the depths to which it organizes our society. How are you apologizing and confessing for something like in any real way, even if you like take confession as valuable, you know? Yeah. I mean, as you're speaking, I just kept thinking of other images of like Justin Trudeau, like taking a knee at a protest or something. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, cops taking a knee too, but especially like political figures in particular. Um, and one thing that your article just kind of made me think about is how, uh, because Christianity is part of the governance of the world or the kind of like infrastructure of the governance, however you want to put it, um, you know, maybe there's a way in which these are kind of analogous situations. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. bizarre to see Trudeau uh, kneel at a protest because like people are protesting Trudeau. So, you know, it's kind of like what, <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? Um, and I wonder, do you think there's something similar going on there too with this kind of performative confession of Christians that it's, you know, the protest is in, you know, maybe explicit or implicit or whatever, but uh, the protest is against a kind of Christian ordering of the world. So um, that might be part of it. I don't mm -hmm. know. Oh, that makes total sense. Oh, wow. No, I, so I hadn't even thought about it like that, but that's a really great point of um, one of my longstanding critiques of Christianity is that it's, like, very good at, like, assimilating critiques of itself in such a way as to, like, neutralize them. And I think uh, that kind of, like, move to confess in order to like attain a kind of absolution is like precisely like how that often happens like i think there's often these like people who are like oh the church needs to lament and for the sin of racism or something and i always like find that like uh i i always find that like weird i guess like um 
<laughs> I guess I'm just like, uh, to me, the thing the church needs to do or Christianity needs to do or whatever is like become responsible and accountable for the harm that it's caused, which, um, yeah, like, I'm just like, I don't care about like white people feeling like sad or something about racism which like if those are the feelings that people have that's like fine like but that doesn't need to be the basis of um like a political demand with regards to um how the world is set up and how it's ordered so i think that's like yeah you're really wise to point out that there's a way that like this christian order is being contested and it's like precisely in claiming to like accept that contest that it actually like um just like reproduces its like governance of the world in some way yeah well um i think maybe we can pivot the conversation in a little bit of a different direction uh, so you know th these protests are happening and um and, and like a lot of Christians are having a hard time affirming, you know, the real challenges to, to order. And they're really quick to double down on um, on, on nonviolence. Right. That's what that's what good Christians uh, are supposed to be about, uh, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and they want to uh, separate themselves out from the, the violent protests. Right. This whole this whole thing that we've kind of talked about already with order. But I guess, like, why why do you think Christians do that, especially with regard to violence? Is there a similar logic to it that uh, that we were just kind of talking about, or is there something different going on there? Like, what is it about Christianity that makes this really hard for Christians to think through with regard to to violence and protest? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think there's a few things going on. One of which. Um, to me, I understand that kind of distinction as like a power move that people make. And part of like the power that lies in that move is like uh, making, a, creating a distinction and then determining the boundaries of those distinctions in order to like justify one's perception of the world. And part of what seems so inadequate to me about that kind of distinction is uh, these protests, these uprisings are like contestations of how people have been perceiving the world and their sense of how things are or how they should be. And so to me, when people make those kinds of distinctions, what they're doing is like refusing to see what's happening. They're refusing to see um, you know, the, they're refusing to see like the multitude of reasons why people would be angry enough to burn down a police station or why people would be, uh, so kind of worn down and exploited by this racial capitalist, uh, police occupying, police occupied like situation that so many black people inhabit that they would uh, loot a target. And uh, to me, like part of what that kind of distinction allows is for people to not have to see, uh, not have to see the people who 
like challenge their perception of the world. And so by kind of like separating the wheat from the chaff, essentially, uh, they're able to like reconcile the protests to what they already think about the world instead of actually having something else revealed to them about what's happening. That seems to go back to what you were just saying, right, about um, Christianity being uh, the order that's being protested. But that's why Christians not only kind of can't can't see it as such, but they also try to maybe suck in the parts of it that they can and condemn the rest of it or something. Um, And yeah, that brings me to a a moment in your essay that I think is really uh, helpful for at least clarifying some of this. So, um, you know, you you draw out that a white supremacist order is a a form of uh, it's a Christian form of order. Um, so I'll read kind of like a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's really uh, helpful the way you put it. So you say, today it's very popular for Christian leftists to announce God is on the side of the oppressed, that a divine order of liberation and redemption is a challenge to this political order, and that Christian nationalists are misappropriations of the true liberative core of the Christian message. While these announcements have their use, they also carry the danger of erasing both the history of Christian order as the maintenance of racial order and the black radical work that went into making black life theologically meaningful, valuable, and a source of theological knowledge. Um, I think that a lot of listeners uh, would read a, a passage like that and still wonder why it might be so bad to say that, you know, authentic or true Christianity is really on the side of the oppressed or, um, you know, trying to figure out what it means exactly to affirm that Christianity is part of this racial order. So could you explain a little bit further why you want to resist, on the one hand, that that conflation of Christianity and, and true liberation, um, and then on the other hand, uh, you know, why you want to help Christians affirm um, Christianity's uh, complicity in, in building all this stuff? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a real desire by many Christians to be like, how can we make Christianity good again <laughs> or make it the good guy? And to me, I'm like, that ship sailed with Christopher Columbus, you know, probably before that. But like, actually, that's to me, that's like an unethical question to ask, given Christianity's history. Uh, And to me, I think that Christians often like to keep things within this like moral framework of like good or bad like how can we make christianity good as opposed to the bad christianity that christian nationalism is uh and i think the reality of christian history is that it's not just a kind of like evangelical fundamentalist christian nationalism that is the source of an anti-black order in the world it's also like very orthodox you know anglican Methodist, Baptist, whatever, mainline, Catholic, like very core and uh, sophisticated theological ideas and views that were the source of creating and sustaining uh, the racial order of the West. And so to me, this uh, desire to say, well, the true core of Christianity is liberative, is to, uh, I, again, make a kind of distinction, right, between the good and the bad in order to separate out what people think of as some kind of impurity 
or some kind of distortion of the true thing from the good thing. Uh, and to me, that is, again, a power move that kind of preserves one's perception of things and how they should be. And I think the challenge of uh, Black existence, the challenge of Black uh, uprising, the challenge of Black radical uh, knowledge is a challenge to that kind of power move of making this distinction between the pure and the impure or the true core and the false kind of appearance and saying that uh, Christianity is what it has done. Um, and in order to actually confront the state of the world in a way that's adequate to uh, the suffering the Black people experience in a way that's adequate to the like courage and uh, the creativity that Black people have exhibited uh, in the wake of 400 years of oppression and still going. Like the only way to become adequate to that demand that Black life and existence makes on our understanding of the world is to like really have a reckoning with uh, the fact that you can't that the, with the fact that making that distinction is a decision to like preserve uh, an anti-black world. And in order to like end that world, uh, this like desire for governing, you know, what is good and bad according to this kind of Christian order of things has to die uh, as well. So I think, um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, I think it comes out of, like, a good place, uh, but I'm just like, um, where do you think these ideas that God is on the side of the poor and oppressed came from? Like, that, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, well, that's the core idea of Christianity, and um, it's like, yeah, kind of, but also, like, not, like, <laughs> like, historically, like, it's not like that's been a kind of, like, uncontested, the uncontested approach of Christianity or the church. And, right, in the contemporary period, it's only through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and work on the part of Black people and Latin American liberation theologians or you know, Native American theologians or what have you, that that has become a kind of uh, theological possibility in our imagination. And so to me, when people kind of make that move to say, like, this is the true liberative core or whatever, it's attempting to kind of uh, gloss over uh, the fact that there's actually a very deep conflict within Christian history, right, about what the true message of Christianity is, and that it's actually, like, not a settled thing, and that there's actually uh, a fight over theological knowledge and what that is and what it means for reality and our existence together, and that that has often been uh, used in 
not just used, but that's often been like the source of arranging things in a way that's anti-black. And so to me, it's very irresponsible to try to like jump over these histories as simply misappropriations or simply people misusing things when it's like, no, 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 people like uh, had very orthodox theological like rationale for the racial order that they established. And until people can kind of contend with that fact that the things they think are good or right or true about Christianity are precisely the things uh, that like fund and maintain anti-blackness, then, you know, I don't think people will be able to get very far in having a kind of Christian existence that's adequate to the demand that blackness makes of it. Can I ask you a follow-up about that with respect to, I've been rereading um, James Cone's uh, God of the Oppressed lately, and I I was struck by it just after having read your um, article in The Bias, uh, because he says um, in in a few places, uh, he talks about, you know, the, the profound kind of disconnect between um, white Christians uh, being being good Christians and at the same time being good uh, racists and white supremacists. And then, uh, so he'll <laughs> he'll say that um, kind of on the one hand and point out this, you know, this kind of irony or, or whatever term you'd want to say. Uh, but then on the other hand, he'll say things like, you can only be a true Christian uh, if you are on the side of the oppressed. And then that means affirming that Jesus is, Jesus is black, right? Totally. And like, how are we to understand those kind of same things together? Or like, what's the intervention that Cohn is making into this um, fight, as you say, for theological knowledge or the fight to be able to make those kinds of claims? Yeah, I mean, I guess first I'll just say I think this is probably a place where I diverge from James sure. Cohn in some <laughs> ways. But I think I understand... Uh, what I understand Cohn to be saying in those instances is that white theology has kind of operated as not even black life, black existence. It's not even an afterthought. It's like not worthy of thought. And as I understand him, what he's saying is like, there's actually no possibility of understanding what the gospel or redemption could mean without it being revealed through black existence and black experience, black culture and black history. And um, to me, I think the strength of his argument is, uh, is in his kind of, uh, I mean, I think some people think he like just inverts the, system like the theological system and puts black on top over white or something but i think what he actually does is uh more creative than that um because i think what he's trying to draw attention to is how white theology like bolsters a white view of reality and in order to understand the truth of reality actually um that you can't have that without um, without it being revealed through blackness. And so to me, his the way that he makes kind of uh, black 
blackness and the situation of black oppressed people the starting point for theology uh it becomes a way of kind of critiquing this white theological way of producing knowledge about redemption that's actually quite uh, separate from reality and has actually uh served to like uphold uh reality that's essentially based on white fantasy of superiority um well maybe we can kind of round the the conversation out a little bit here with a a question that i think is pretty big and important given the uh the intervention that you kind of just made um so uh if christianity you know is is so complicit in all this very bad stuff (laughs) um to, to say to say it loosely i guess like what what else is there to do with Christianity? Um, what does Christianity become if we if we want to try to oppose the violent order of Christianity and, and deal with the problems of authenticity? Like, is there do you think anything productive left in it? Is there like a different place to start from? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think a lot of my uh my own kind you know, someone who's raised Christian, works in theology, has been very formed by Christianity, uh, a lot of my own approach to it is really informed by both a kind of um, abolitionist uh, ideas of like harm and accountability and transformation, uh, and as well as like uh, kind of trauma, like approaches to thinking about like trauma and healing and um I guess something that I always like think about when I think about Christianity is how there it actually I don't think Christians actually have very good models of like what responsibility and accountability looks like or like what are practices of like harm reduction. I think very often Christians like to have a kind of all or nothing view of things that lets Christianity be good, you know? And it's like, oh, if you are like pointing out all like the terror of Christian history, then Christianity is just bad. And to me, I'm like, yeah, well, I think Christianity is bad, but uh, it's also inescapable in some ways, how it's affected the world, how it's affected individuals, how it's affected communities. Uh, so to me, it's also unrealistic to try to avoid avoid that inheritance. And it seems to me like the responsible thing to do is like uh, become accountable for that by like um, beginning to like actually like learn what the harm is that it's done in order to like get specific about like the depths to which it's terrorized the world, terrorized black people uh, in order to, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that like in order to reduce the harm of Christianity, one actually has to understand the harm that it creates and perpetuates. And to me, um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I feel like there's um sometimes you can like have a conflict with a person 
And I've been this person at times in my life. They're so convinced that like admitting that they've done something harmful makes them a bad person that they actually are too defensive to kind of hear the harm that they've done. And in because they can't hear the harm that they've done or like address that, they actually are not able to change. And it seems to me like if Christianity is to become anything other than what, other than this like terrorizing kind of force in the world, uh, it has to start with losing that kind of like uh, goodness or complex uh, and also losing it a kind of like guilt complex, right? But being about like getting curious about what the harm is uh, and uh, beginning to interrogate that in such a way as to like get specific about uh, what that history is, what it's done and how it continues to work. And to me, that's when a revelation starts happening in terms of like, oh, like I'm realizing like the ways that um, I feel particularly like called to address some of the specific harms of Christianity and I can like work on that. Like, yeah, like I don't think everyone needs to like do everything. Uh, but I think like getting specific about how one's own situation in Christianity, like what are the places where harm has been done? I don't know if you're a pastor or something like, uh, getting specific about like histories of like clergy people and like racism or something. Like, it seems like there's just like room for that kind of um, con contextual and specific kind of like harm reduction practices to occur. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's helpful, but to me, I think, yeah, you have to get rid of this, like, uh, good conscience and bad conscience and like become accountable. Yeah. Um, that is helpful. Very helpful. Helpful to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to be trying to sort that out. I think for the rest of this week, at least. Um, well, uh, if you could maybe bring us back to the, um, the kind of current moment uh, and how it relates to, to this, you know, figuring out like the Christian harms, let's say that have produced like a world in which there's a, a global pandemic and also uprisings all over the U S and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, how can people, whether they're Christian or otherwise, I guess, think about riots, protests, and the disruption of a certain kind of Christian order in a way that um, maybe tries to sort of attend to these roots. Maybe that's like a good note that we could sort of end on, you know, where would you like point people toward if they were trying to, um, do this kind of examination. Yeah. I mean, I think the, like, I think the romance of order is that it, uh, precisely that it appears so orderly, I guess. It's precisely that it kind of seems to have everything in its place. And that enables us to, like, not have to think so much about how things are or what we're supposed to do because order kind of, kind of puts us in our place or tells us what place things should be in and how we should be 
Uh, and to me, these riots and protests and the disruption of that order really highlights how um, it's precisely under this guise of keeping everything orderly and everything in its place that like black people are being harassed by the cops. Uh, you know, uh, George Floyd being murdered over like a counterfeit $20 bill, you know, uh, what is the kind of call to order that makes it so that a police officer needs to go down and take care of that, like, like minute infraction, you know, something that is like in the grand scheme of things, an annoyance for like the person who George Floyd was maybe trying to give a counterfeit $20 bill to, you know, but it's like, look at the kind of effects of that call to order. And so to me, part of understanding these riots is understanding them as a moment of revelation, a revelation of the violence of this kind of Christian and racial order that we live under. And uh, as a revelation that this romance of order is actually uh, built on violence. And even if you're not seeing that violence, uh, even if it's like been displaced to uh, the ghettos or, you know, to the prisons or uh, to, uh, you know, immigration uh, uh, jails, uh, like that call to order is happening in it's yeah, it's being revealed right now. And so to me, like what a Christian has responsibility to do right now is to like not rush to make that kind of categorical distinction between, you know, the good and the bad protester or the true and the false Christianity, but to learn how to like pay attention to what's being revealed about how the world has been operating. And because it's only through attention that you'll be able to like discern the decisions that you're being called to make. And I think those are different for everybody. Uh, I think we all have parts to play. None of us can do everything. Uh, but I think a lot of people, uh, want to just uh, be like, I saw this video and now I have to do X, Y, Z things. And uh, to me, um, Black lives deserve care and Black existence deserves care and attention. And I think very often that gets lost uh, in people kind of assuming that they understand what's happened or what's happening now or something. So to me, yeah, I would just say um, there's an urgency, uh, but there's an urgent need for care and attention and reflection on what's being revealed just as much as there's an urgency for action. And it's only when you have those two together that I think you can sustain a movement. What a great uh, note to end on, I think, and a big challenge uh, to be thinking about too. Um, before we let you go, we should ask you, you know, you've always got something to work on. It seems like every time we talk to you, there's a new project and I imagine being in quarantine has, uh, <laughs> got your creative juices going, I hope anyway. Um, so is there anything that you want to plug in the end here? You mentioned the podcast, maybe you can mention that again and anything else that you've got that you're excited about. Yeah. Uh, the podcast is something I'm doing with my friend, Zach Settle, 
we were students together at Vanderbilt. Uh, and yeah, I'm really excited about the work that we're doing. I feel like, you know, I think a lot of people hear political theology and think about like either Carl Schmidt or something, or they think about like, you know, Christianity and social justice or something. And it's not that those things aren't pertinent to our podcast, but I think we're trying to kind of um, carve out a different idea of what political theology is. We've had poets on the podcast and uh, having a, a tabletop board game maker on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We've had, uh, you know, talking about things like imagining like community and dystopian board games and things like that. Um, we've had scholars, of course, on uh, great interviews or recordings from the Political Theology Network conferences. So I feel like I'm really excited about um, understanding political theology in a like broader way that is committed to like a set of really diverse voices, but also like really diverse mediums as a way of thinking about uh, what's the relationship between like uh, meaning making of theology and like political legitimacy or illegitimacy and transformation and things like that. So yeah, you can go to like uh, politicaltheology.com backslash assembly dot dash podcast um, to see the episodes. That's great. Um, well, thanks again for being on the show, Maria. It will not be your last time. Uh, every time you're here, <laughs> I feel like we we talk about having to share a story about um, being at Corn and Sun Festival at the same time for a particularly bizarre workshop on <laughs> making pants out of uh, roadkill animals. And one day. All right, right. Yeah, no, that wasn't Cornerstone, though. That was gathering around the unhewn stone. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, There's so many Christian conferences. <laughs> There's too many. Like, can't keep up with <laughs> well one day we'll have to uh compare notes and um i'll see how your your uh <laughs> leather hot pants are going you can see how mine are going yeah um but it'll ha- we'll have to save it for Amazing. another time that, maybe that's like a that's a behind the paywall kind of thing for sure you don't want to just release that yeah that's a good idea <laughs> yeah get those patreon dollars that's right. <laughs> thanks for having me on y'all it's always a pleasure to talk with you yeah thanks so much Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, not only should you find us on Patreon and support us at patreon.com slash The Magnificast, you should also be sure to find Amoria's podcast that she does with uh, Zach Settle uh, at um, Political Theology Network. Uh, It's called Assembly. It's a really fantastic uh, series of of episodes, all kinds of diverse stuff, as you just heard her say. Uh, So you should check that out. You can find us elsewhere. We're on Twitter at The Magnificast. We have a Facebook group called The Magnificast Abasement. Um, you can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. And our outro, as always, is by The Illogical Spoon. And once again, our music, uh, our intro and transition is by Amari Armstrong. See you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up. And you 
stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but.